0: You guys did so well last week. What happened? I'm going to have to have James start walking around during greeting time and wrestle you guys up a little bit. Okay. Uh, it's good to see everybody. So before we get too much further, uh, kids, you guys are dismissed. You're going with Monsieur Ed and uh, youth group, middle and high schoolers. You guys are headed out with Pastor Chris and everybody else. We are going to finish... Colossians chapter 3 today. Uh, We'll be in Colossians chapter 3, picking up in verse 18. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you're going to want to have a Bible. Uh, This morning's text is kind of a minefield, I realized as I was uh, studying through it, but we're going to gingerly step our way through it and trust the Lord uh, in it. So again, all the stuff that Susie talked about is super important. We're right at that sort of uh, beginning of a new season here in the fall where we've got uh, again, that new, a new regroup session starting up, which is our midweek Bible study. We've got a new life group starting up, which is our midweek kind of sermon discussion group. And then these small groups for men and women, we're going to journey all the way through all 12 of the minor prophets this year. So if you're interested in participating in those, hopefully you got a bulletin when you came in. Um, All the times if you look just on that left panel as you open it up all the times for those different midweek meetings are listed right there and um, You can sign up at the back table You don't need to sign up to come to regroup or the life group But you do need to sign up to do the small groups or else you won't know where to go or the zoom link if it's one of the zoom meetings, so again just as we sort of get it's finally starting to feel a little bit like fall. We're back to school now. We're back to work. Summer's over and uh, just some neat opportunities uh, for some fellowship and just some continued growth. So um, anyway, let's pray and just really ask the Lord to bless this text uh, this morning as uh, we know that he wants to do. So Father, how we do. Thank you, Lord. And we thank you for uh, this wonderful church body that you've uh, surrounded us with, Lord, and we thank you for your word that you desire to uh, minister to us this morning. Lord, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church, Lord, that, uh, that we'd be uh, attentive this morning and that our hearts would be open to those things that he wants to speak, not just to us uh, collectively Lord, but to speak to us uh, each individually. So we pray that this morning, Lord, and we ask your blessing on this time, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So if anybody did need a Bible, um, anybody? Just raise your hand, and uh, maybe Rick or Suresh will bring one to you, nobody? Okay, you can use a Bible on your phone, wherever you want to use it. I don't care what Bible you use, just use a Bible. So we're working our way, as we know, toward the end of this letter, written by the Apostle Paul to this church there in Colossae. And again, we've talked about the fact that they were this little church in this little town that had this big problem because there was this wave of false teachings that were really impacting and kind of challenging the growth of these new believers and the way that they would mature in their faith. And in this section here now in chapter three, Paul is really focused in on how our faith should be lived out in our lives, right? How all of that wonderful doctrinal truth that we saw in chapters one and two is now sort of fleshed out in chapters three and four. First of all, the way that it's lived out in an individual basis, remember the putting off and then the, the putting on of that new man, the new nature in our behavior as a people of God and you know inhabited by the spirit of God. And then we looked at how those very same traits in a collective sense, right? We talked about the distinctives that should mark The community of God—that those same traits lead to what you know. As people look into the church, they should see what we called you know a colony of heaven in a kingdom, or we could say in a culture of death. Remember that we should be a peace governed, scripture inhabited, worship instructed, Jesus in Jesus focused, and a thankful hearted community of people. Right. We should be something that is so altogether different from what people see in the world that they look into the church and they say, wow, something's really must be going on there. And so now as Paul continues kind of pressing on in our text today, what we're going to see him do is sort of focus back down in a sense. He's going to kind of narrow the lens or narrow the focus or whatever you do with a lens uh, to what what it looks like not just as we live these things out in the context of the church, but the, really the way that we live them out each and every day in our homes, right? And in our families, and then finally in our workplaces. And you talk about intensely practical. You talk about you know the rubber really meeting with the road. Well, this is it. Because all of that beautiful atmosphere, all of those wonderful attitudes that should be so evident amongst us as God's people, right? But not just as we gather together here on Sunday mornings. We all look pretty good, don't we, from about 10 to noon on Sunday, right? But we're not supposed to just sort of put these qualities on and these kind of godly attitudes and behaviors. We don't just put them on when we get together as a church, but these are the very things that we're to be living out, that very same faith in every sphere of every relationship in our lives each and every day. Because that, we could say, is a faith that works. And that's how we really put our faith to work. right? If our faith is a faith that really works, then what we're going to see Paul say here is the very first place that our Christian faith should go to work is in the home. And in the very most primary of all of those relationships, which is, of course, the marriage relationship. So Paul begins with a a fairly strong word of exhortation to the husbands and to the wives, right? Putting your faith to work in our marriages. So look at, starting off in verse 18 of Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes... He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. You didn't think I was just going to read one of those verses without reading the other one, right? I mean, I'm dumb, but I'm not that dumb. Right? But really, I read through them together because they're designed to go together. There's a beautiful sense of a balance between them. There is a God-ordained, divinely designed, spirit-inspired sense of balance between those two verses. And what's so very interesting as we look at all of what the Bible says about marriage, what we find is that this is really it. In its essence, right? these two verses in their substance are sort of the sum total teaching on marriage in the Bible. It's not like, okay, everybody turn this morning to the book of first marriage, right? And then there's some 187 page long sort of complicated thing and we're wading our way through it and we're trying to understand, well, what's my place in this relationship? And okay, here's these 10 steps now to have a successful marriage. But what we see instead is it's just one command per person in the marriage. One command to the wife and one command to the husband. And each of these commands we need to remember is made by the one who created both the woman and the man, right? He knows exactly how he's made us. And so he's boiled it all down to these two foundational commands. These are the two commands that you cannot violate within that relationship without creating all kinds of tremendous problems for the relationship. No doubt, there is all kinds of things that can be said about Christian marriage. There's so much that we could talk about in terms of good communication and mutual admiration and all these kinds of things, and they're all very important for a healthy marriage. But what I think that the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit, of course, does here is he just puts down these kind of two peers. Right. These are what really constitute the very foundation in their essence and he says do not violate these two things because what happens is no matter what you do or what you what you might try to add to make up for a lack of obedience in these two areas it will never be enough to to repair the damage or, or to 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 really be successful outside of doing these things. and So he says to the woman, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So the husband is called to be the authority within the marriage. Now here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean he's more valuable than the wife. It certainly doesn't mean he's more capable or that he's more intelligent or that he's somehow more connected to God or that he's more spiritual than the wife. All that it means is that God has in His order, He has chosen for the man to be the head in terms of authority within that household. And we need to trust, though we may not understand why, we need to trust that since it was God who established this order, that it's good. Although we have certainly seen Unfortunately, we've seen so many examples of how this good thing has been marred by the sin of individuals. And of course, the word submit is where things start to get challenging, right? And yet, the ancient Greek word that's used here for submit is just a word that was borrowed basically from the military. And all it means is to be under in rank. Right? So you've got generals and colonels and majors and captains and sergeants and privates. And did I get that right, Sally? The order? That's right. Good enough. Right? And all of those things do is just denote different responsibilities, different priorities, different duties. For example, we know that as a person, a private can certainly be smarter and more talented and just inherently a better person than the general is. And yet that private is still under rank to that general. So the private isn't submitted so much to the general as a person as the private is submitted to the general as the general. And in the very same way, the wife isn't called to submit to her husband because he deserves it, but she submits because he is her husband and that's the order that the Lord has ordained. God himself is a God of order and a God of submission even within himself, right where we see that God the Son willingly submits to God the Father who elevates the Son and God the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son as he is sent out from the Father. All of this beautiful mutual sense of submission, all at work together in the one creator God. It's part of God's eternal essence. And notice, Paul is very careful here to limit the scope or to limit the sphere of this submission, right? The wife's submission, what does it say there? Is to her own husband. And I point that out to point out that the Bible never commands nor recommends any kind of a general submission of women unto men. It's only commanded in the two spheres of the home and the church. And unfortunately, it's in our secular culture that idea of submit in the context of a marriage, that's where people really start to rail because what it does is it conjures up in people's imaginations some kind of poor, downtrodden woman who's the victim of her husband's every whim, and she's unable to be herself. She's unable to think for herself. She's unable to make any kind of contributions to the relationship. Have you met my wife? Right? Does that sound the least bit like a description of her? I will tell you she is brilliant. She is much smarter than I will ever be. You guys are getting the short end of the stick in this deal for sure. She is brilliant, she is capable, she is fiercely independent in so many ways and yet she's so beautifully submitted unto the Lord in this relationship as is fitting in the Lord. And yet the problem is that the fact that there are still a few places in the world where women are treated like this, kind of like second-class citizens, that's enough to make some people suggest that this is what the Apostle Paul intended. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because notice, the very next and the very simple exhortation he gives to the husband is what? Is to love your wives. And again, these are meant to go together because there's something that's intended to be happening here. There's this dynamic where as the husband is loving the wife, the wife is responding to that love and to that sense of the security and the safety that that love produces in her life, and she simply is responding to it through her submission. And it's not at all an oppressive thing, but what it really is is it's a life-giving thing. Because we remember uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, as Paul gave this same set of commands in a slightly expanded version, he wrote the same thing to the Ephesians, and this is what he wrote. In Ephesians 5.22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Then he goes on in verse 25 to say, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish." Now that hardly sounds like some kind of an oppressive relationship for the wife. But it sounds like one of supreme sacrifice and of supreme service on the part of the husband, and then of this beauty of this submission as a response to that love and to that service that then comes from the wife. Because, of course, the marriage relationship, in essence, is simply a picture of what? It's a picture of our relationship with the Lord Jesus, right? The church is his bride. So understanding this, there is no husband in his right mind that could look at what the Bible teaches about marriage and think to himself, okay, well, I'm some sort of a grand poohbah, right? I'm sort of some sort of big baller around here, right? And I'm going to get myself like a crown and maybe a cape and maybe a big old medallion, right? And I'm just going to sit around and when I snap my fingers, boy, she better come running and get me whatever I want. So so does that sound at all like what Paul is talking about here? It's all a picture of this mutual service and this mutual submission to one another and these roles that the Lord has divinely established for each one of us. The husband is leading and the wife needs to recognize that what he's called to do is not at all an easy thing And she's to come alongside then and support him in that role. And can I tell you, as a husband, there is nothing more important than that. As a husband, I mean, he would consider himself to be the richest man in the world, assuming he's not a knucklehead, right? But but a man who looks and says, here's this woman, right, that God has given me, who will stick with me and support me even through all of my bad decisions, right? Think Sarah and Abraham kind of bad decisions, right? But here in the midst of this desire that I have to try to hear from the Lord and my responsibility that I have to try to lead this family, here she is. And when a husband feels like that in the course of his life, as we sit and we look and we say, you know what? I know that everything that I own, could come and go three or four times. And yet I know that at the end of my life, unless death do us part, but I know that this woman will still be there by my side and he will consider himself a tremendously rich person. And of course, God knows that there's this need within men to be supported in that role. And so he's called the wife to fill that need. And likewise, the God who created her, he knows how he's made the woman and he knows that she so highly values, you know, as much as the husband desires to have support from his wife, the woman highly values that love that comes from her husband because as we said before, it translates into a sense of safety and of security, not to mention her value and her worth. And of course, That word for love that Paul uses, anybody want to take a wild guess at what it might be? You guessed it. It's agape love. It is that selfless, supernatural, sacrificial, unconditional, relational, relentless kind of Holy Spirit supplied kind of love. It's the same love that God himself has for each of us. It's the love that we experience from God that then allows us to entrust ourselves to Him. That's the love that a wife should be receiving from her husband. And that's the love then that enables her to submit herself and her well being to His care and His authority because she knows from her experience, just like we know in our experience with God, she knows that that love is always going to produce the very best for her. And guys, can I just tell you this, men? This goes so far beyond just telling our wives that we love her, although I will say that is absolutely a part of this arrangement, and it is a wonderful and an important way that we feed and we nurture our wives continuously. I don't think they're watching this morning, so I'm probably safe to tell this, but my own dear father, right? A brilliant man, right? An aerospace engineer by profession. I think he literally was some kind of a rocket scientist. So much so, we never really understood what it was he did. All we knew is that it had something to do with NASA and something to do with space, right? But this brilliant man, who I'll also say has now been married for nearly 60 years, right? But this brilliant man, he's a man, okay? And he actually, as my mother tells the story, he actually once early on in their marriage, he said to her out loud, he said, Carol, I told you that I loved you when we got married, and if anything changes, I will let you know. I'm pretty sure he only said that once. (laughs) And I will say this, is that he is now one of the most self-sacrificing, others-focused husbands and fathers that you could ever imagine. But guys, it is a very wise husband when we come to understand, not only do our wives need that continuous assurance of our love through our words, but more so, as we live our lives like Jesus did, demonstrating that real agape love for her as we lay down our lives for her at every turn in every way. Isn't it interesting, and it certainly isn't a coincidence, it's not a mistake, that these two commands that the Lord has given to us as husbands and wives, they are the very things which fulfill what are really the deepest needs in each of us, right? For the wife to be loved and for the husband to be respected. There's actually a great book on Christian marriage by that same name, right? It's called Love and Respect. So what we have in all of this is that when these two commands are actually obeyed, you start to see the things just kind of snowball, right? In a good way. Right? Because the man feels like, you know what, this woman is with me and she's committed to me for the rest of my life. And then that, that sense of love for her, the way that Christ loved the church, just starts to bloom and blossom. And then she starts to feel, you know what, he really does love me the way that Christ loves the church. And then both of them become so very secure in that marriage. And then that marriage just starts to get better and better and better. And better on the basis of that dynamic. And I will say this and then I promise we're going to move on. There have been already too many times in the course of the years that I've been a pastor when a couple will come in and they are at the end of their rope as it relates to their marriage. And so often you get the sense that they've come in, of course, after this thing has been smoldering and has been simmering, and the pressure has been building, sometimes for five or 10 or even 20 years, but they come in and they're going to give you at least an hour to fix it, right? Otherwise, they're just going to call it quits. And yet what happens is that as they come in and you listen to all of the symptoms and you listen to all of the circumstances and the things that are happening in the relationship, the more that you listen to the details, the more you realize that neither one of those two people have really obeyed that one single command that's been given to them directly by the Lord. He's not loving her the way that Christ loved the church And she's not supporting him the way he needs to be supported. And the difficulty in these kinds of situations, as these couples come, right, considering divorce, because it certainly sounds like the only solution at this point, but is to try to help that couple understand that if you go ahead and divorce one another in this situation, then you have not obeyed that one single command that God gave you, and you will spend the rest of your life knowing that God never really had a chance to make this marriage be successful. God knows exactly what he is doing, and we simply need to give him the opportunity to do it. So, start to submit to your husband and support him in his role, And then you love your wife the way that Jesus Christ loves his church. And then just watch the way that this thing could start to take off. And I've heard them all. What if I start to submit to him first and he still won't love me the way that I need to be loved? Well, keep supporting him. And then keep supporting him some more. And then he says, well, what if I love her first and she doesn't end up submitting to me? And we say, well, keep loving her and then keep loving her some more. Did Jesus stop loving us when we refused to submit to him? Of course not. He kept loving us. The Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Nobody ever wants to be first. But again, I have a hard word here for the guys. Guys, Jesus is always the initiator in our relationship with him. And we are called as men to be the initiators in our relationships with our wives, to love them first the way that Jesus loves us. And as we're doing that, Paul needs to add this. Look what he adds at the end of that same verse. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. So apparently this is enough of a tendency of husbands towards wives that Paul has to call it out here to be bitter toward them. And honestly, again, it can happen both ways, can't it? Where there develops this little bit of bitterness between both people. And what so often happens is that a husband will get frustrated with his wife because she doesn't think like a man. Right? She's probably more emotional because... She was designed to be that way. She was designed differently than you are. And men, we think, you know, well, I'd like to have a woman, but I'd like her just to be more like a man. Well, no, you wouldn't. Because if she were, then she wouldn't be wired to put up with you and to bear with you. And while we're here, right, to be fair, Sometimes a wife is so upset with the fact that her husband well he isn't this and he isn't that and you sit down And you sit and listen to what she says she wants her husband to be and she's describing another woman What she needs is a good girlfriend and she would hate her husband if he became that for her And I do realize, I'm speaking sort of half-tongue-in-cheek here and in huge generalities, and that both husbands and wives can absolutely grow in all of these areas. But my point is that sometimes we think we want what we want because it's just in our comfort zone, and that leads to this bitterness toward the other person. You know, oh, he's just such a man, or oh, she's just always acting like a woman. But we think this way because we're not embracing the fact That God designed us to be different so that we would complement, right, or complete one another. Again, another book, there was a book written, this one was written a while back, as you can see by the cover. But it nails this, at least through the title, it was that men are from Mars and women are from Venus book. And again, it's right, at least in the sense that we are different. Men and women aren't the same. We were never supposed to be the same because God, that difference is there by design. So rather than letting it become a source of bitterness, especially, Paul says, for husbands, we need to accept and embrace these differences and not allow them to lead into this bitterness. One more thing in handling this verse. There's something to be said, again, the husband is not to use his authority to make her bitter, right, or to exasperate her. Some of the translations say, do not be harsh with them. And in this case, Peter, who himself, of course, was a husband, he encouraged us as husbands, guys, put a star by this one, put it to memory. 1 Peter 3, 7, where he says that we need to dwell with our wives with understanding giving honor to the wife as to the weaker or the more delicate vessel, Our wives, like tender, sensitive flowers, they will absolutely wilt under some kind of misguided authoritarian sort of dominance, but they will blossom and they will flourish and they will grow beautifully with tender loving kind of care. Guys, God did not give us authority in the marriage relationship to make our our life, you know, our wives' lives or to be cruel to them. Right? We can never use it that way. And God trust me, he has his own way of dealing with husbands if they choose to do that. So, do not be bitter to them. And I don't know how I do this, but somehow I took what I said were these two simple commands, right? And I still managed to go on for nearly 20 pages and 24 slides and easily a half an hour. What can I say, right? Except God have mercy on you poor people, but. So Paul now, right, he's gonna turn his attention, right, in the home, right, from the parents now to the children, right? So we're putting our faith to work in our marriages and we're putting our faith to work with our children. Yes, I stay up late at night to come up with these very clever outline points, right? Verse 20 says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And it occurred to me last night, boy, this would have been the week to have the youth stay in service, right? Because at this point, I know I'm just preaching to the choir, right? But again... There's such simplicity here, right? In God's command, his heart for kids, obey your parents in what? All things. And those two little words, those are pretty important, aren't they? All things. Because just about every child, surely even every teen, right? They could easily obey in about half the things that are required of them by their parents. But the real test is to be able to obey them in just those two or three or four little things where they really want to rebel. Those things where they sit and they steam and they say, well, I'm never gonna grow up. I'm never gonna do this to my kids when I have them. And of course, then we see that what? When they do have kids, they do every bit of that and more to them, right? But this is really the test for a young person, especially as they head off into those teen years, to obey their parents in all things. And the reason, of course, is that the Bible teaches us what we as adults have probably learned the hard way is that our obedience to our parents, that's the pathway to a good life and to a life of blessing. Again, to the Ephesians, right? Paul writes, he amplifies what was written in the Old Testament law. He says this, Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So God gave us parents to help guide us and to watch over us and to try to protect our future from us. But of course, what happens, we, we get to a certain age, right? Those glorious teenage years. And then we immediately, some teens, not the teens who are in service this morning, but some teens immediately believe that they know everything. And they immediately believe that their parents don't know anything, that they're wrong about everything, and that somehow their friends are the ones who know everything right, that suddenly those are the people with all the wisdom. All the other 15, 16, 17-year-olds, that group right there, right, they've got the market cornered on the true wisdom for life. Who wants to listen to the older generation? What do they know? And of course, a younger generation ought to listen to the older generation because the older generation once was the younger generation, right? We've lived this. We thought the same things, and we made the very same mistakes that we're trying to keep you from making. And there are some of us who know that if we had listened to our parents, right, the older we get, the more true this becomes, if we had listened to our parents, boy, things would have been a lot better. And again, This is this wisdom in this order that God has ordained for us. Now, a quick note because it's a question people ask. There is a biblical distinction between the obedience that God requires of a child who's still living under their parents' care and the honor that the scriptures say is always due our parents even after we're out on our own. But you see how the one flows beautifully right out of the other, right? There's still that wisdom that that older generation has that's meant to be passed down. And just in case there are any kids who happen to listen to this message, I wanna say this. You only get one shot at being a child. And trust me, there is something so wonderful if you're able to look back, right, at the end of that childhood season as you're moving off into adult life, to be able to look back and to say, you know what, I was a blessing to my parents. I was a blessing to my family and you never get a chance to relive those years. You only have one shot at it. And the way to do it, Paul says, this is the way that's pleasing to the Lord. The Lord just likes it. It delights him. Just like he likes the godly home that all of this creates, right? So Paul's just kind of working through. He's laying out all of these basic things. And as you start to put all of these things together in the home, now we're starting to see that you've got something that's really pretty good. And it's really very unique. You've got this agape love of the husband. You've got this loving support of the wife. You've got this godly authority of the parents. You've got this blessed obedience of the children. And you start to see all of these different spheres where our faith really is working. And yet with this... Now Paul is forced to add again. Look at verse 21. It's one more important word of warning and exhortation. And once again, it comes, men, it comes to us. Verse 21 says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So as a parent, we need to be very careful to use that God-given authority always to build our kids up and never to tear them down. And he's talking here to the fathers and the husbands, but what he's saying absolutely also applies to the mothers. But he says it specifically to the fathers because he knows that we're usually the ones who are prone to fail in this area. Here are the fathers, right, with this ultimate responsibility as the head of the household, there's always a very real risk of using and ultimately abusing that God-given authority as we deal with our kids. And it produces a real sense of discouragement in them. And it produces this discouragement in them when we demand something of them that's impossible for them to produce when we put on them these unreal expectations of this perfect obedience or some kind of superior performance, and we're constantly riding them and we're constantly pushing them, or we're making them feel like they're just not living up to whatever this standard is that we've set for them. And Paul says, Fathers, don't do that. Don't provoke them because you will break them. He says it will discourage them, and as we know, sometimes to the point of just giving up. They get discouraged, and their heart just sinks, and they just say, you know what, this guy can just never be pleased, no matter what I do. No matter what I do, it's never going to be enough for him. There's no future in this relationship. There's no hope here. And you know, young people too often, they give up completely on the faith, because they just felt that there was absolutely no way to please their parent and particularly their fathers. Because guys, as their earthly fathers, we are to them a living picture of their heavenly father. How's that for a responsibility check? And so we think about the dangers of this possibility of this discouragement, and we think, okay, well, what's the opposite? Well, of course, it's the great blessings that come from encouragement, right? These long-term blessings that that provides, and it's so very powerful. You know, here we are trying to form the character of a young person, not just conform their behavior. And we need to realize that that young person isn't going to be a young person forever. They're going to be 25 years old, and then they're going to be 35, and then they're going to be 55, and so on. And I'm not going to be here to correct them and to keep their behavior in line. But what I can do is I can build in to their character. And that they're going to be fashioned not just by the way that we train them, but even more by the way that we build into them by encouraging them and the ways that we respond to them just like the Lord responds to us. And I so often think of that that great, it's a very probing passage in Psalm 103. It says that as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. And what that psalm reminds us is that God knows and he sees our weaknesses and he sees our frailty and he bears with it lovingly and patiently because in a sense, he expects our failure. He knows that we were formed right out of dust. We're prone to failure, and I think, man, that is so gl- I'm so glad God looks at me that way. But again, it's a vivid picture of what we're to be like as fathers and mothers to our children. And so again, we've got Paul, right? He's talked about this wonderful life in the community of God as the people of God are gathered together. He's told us, remember last time, about the peace of God and the word of God dwelling richly in us and about not serving ourselves but serving the Lord and serving one another. And now he's taking all of that, those beautiful same qualities that we see, and he says we're to bring those into the Christian life where it really matters most which is in our homes with our families, right? with the wife and the husband and the children and all of us collectively nurturing those very same kind of qualities there in that home environment. And again, we mentioned before, many a person has left the faith because of what they observed or what they experienced in a so-called Christian home. Do not be that parent that stumbles your children because you say one thing at church or you say one thing when Christians are around, but then you live an entirely different negative life in the presence of your home. Do not be that person. You do not want to be that person, the person that we want to be is that person that you know? God wants these relationships, he wants these to be a context in which he can shine forth. He wants our homes and our marriages and the way that we parent our children really to bring glory to him and he wants to bless us through those things and to bless all of the successive generations in our family. So, Paul's now gonna move into the very final section of this section, right? From putting our faith at work in our, in our marriages and with our children, he's going to show us yet one more sphere where we can put our faith to work, and that's at work, right? In our workplaces. Verse 22 starts out, it says, Bondservants, servants, some of your translations may say slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. So in addition to this obedience and submission in our marriages and in our homes, there's another sphere where God's authority and his order is to be seen. And in our cultural context, it clearly translates to the fact that employees have a God-ordained role of both obedience and submission to their employers or their supervisors. I don't have time for this, but I don't care. Anyway, before we look at this, I really feel like we need to address just one minute the issue of slavery in the context of the scriptures, especially this accusation that somehow the authors of the New Testament and that the authors of the Bible itself in the Old Testament somehow condone or confirmed the practice of slavery as we understand it. Because again, the truth is that nothing could be further from the actual truth. First of all, we make the mistake of looking at slavery in the New Testament through the lens of what we know to have been slavery in the tragic history of our own country and of Western Europe. For the most part, the slavery of the Bible And especially of the New Testament in particular, it was much more so one usually of indentured servitude, where someone either voluntarily or because of financial necessity, they became a servant. Now, during Paul's day, understand that fully two thirds of the population of the Roman Empire were servants. They were servants who served in all kinds of different roles, from agriculture to education to mining to to household work, in the very same way that the majority of the population in our culture today serves and works in all of these same industries plus them, right? So when Paul writes to those who were servants, or what we might call the you know, what we would probably call the working class, right, who, by the way, made up the majority of the population of the church. So when Paul writes to these servants in the first century, he simply encourages them, hey, you're working, be faithful as you're working where you are for the sake of your testimony. Now, in the Old Testament, far from promoting slavery, The Mosaic law, which remember the law of Moses was only ever meant to be temporary in God's economy. But the Mosaic law was the first of any ancient code to actually regulate and to mitigate and to humanize what was already the existing widespread ancient pagan practice of slavery, which you could find in most every one of ancient civilizations. The law of Moses, when we look at it, it provided protection for those who were servants and severe penalties for those who mistreated them. And all of this was put in place temporarily until the gospel of Jesus Christ would come later remember, which was the fullness of what the law began. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is what ultimately provided the foundation for the ultimate ending of slavery everywhere and anywhere that it touched. Because it's the gospel of Jesus that declares that all men are created in the image of God. And it demonstrates that that very same riches are available in Jesus Christ to every one of them and that God died equally for them because they are of equal worth and of supreme value in the eyes of their creator. And I will just say this, that those who tried, and even today still will try, to somehow use the Bible to defend the horrible and tragic institution of slavery in the history of this country, they did it only by twisting the scriptures and wrenching them beyond any reasonable or any rightful interpretation or application. Both the law of the Old Testament, which by the way expressly forbade slavery by kidnapping, right, and it completely wrenched the interpretation of the gospel of the New Testament which inherently prohibits the devaluing of any individual. But they try to use these scriptures and they just twist them beyond recognition to try to defend what is an indefensible, nothing less than the most absolutely sinful stain on the history of our nation. Now, I know that this painful topic, it would well be worth a month of Sundays in and of itself. But my point in just spending a minute on it was I wanted us to at least get this brief thought out there so that we can understand that Paul's words here still have application for us. They have application for us rightly in the context that we're in because they do much more closely speak to this employer, employee. We have a lot more rights as individuals and as employees, than they did in in Rome, and yet the context of this employer-employee kind of relationship is still valid for us today. And notice too, specifically, in the original language, the word that Paul uses here is bond servant, which, as we've seen and we've talked about before, a bond servant was a special kind of a servant. Right? remember it's that beautiful Greek word doulos which speaks of a, a lifelong servant by choice a servant who had pledged himself to his master for the rest of his life again it's another one of those beautiful pictures of the relationship that we're to have with Jesus right so again this is where our faith